All right, open your Bibles to Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 12 and 13. We are spending a couple weeks here looking at spiritual warfare. We'll probably be here next week and maybe the week after. Let's look at this. The New York Times, of course, that bastion of unbiased, objective reporting, (laughs) reported on a survey by the Barna Group. And in that survey, it was noting the diminishing belief in the devil. And interesting, among Americans, two-thirds of Americans do not believe in the devil. They do not believe that he is a person or an entity. In fact, according to the survey, the majority of Americans believe the devil, devil is a symbol for evil, not an entity or a person in and of himself. In fact, the Times then stated, quote, If less than one in three Americans seems willing to give the devil his due, then it is a result of a fundamental long-term shift in the nation's religious culture. Isn't that interesting? Now, if the world does not believe in the devil, the contemporary church believes in him too much. In fact, there is a book that came out by David Pallison. It was called Power Encounters, Reclaiming Spiritual Warfare. And in this book, he introduces the reader to a woman he counseled will call Cynthia. Cynthia tells us, as you read the book, that she once cast demons out of her toaster because it didn't work. You laugh. More seriously, however, she and her husband had a remarkably destructive way of arguing with each other. In Cynthia's own words, she said, I saw the demon looking out of his eyes, glittering and murderous. So I said, demon of anger, I cast you out. I cast you out in the power of Jesus' name. Then I claimed the power of Jesus' blood as my cover from all demonic assault coming through my husband. It could have been the demon of lust. It could have been the demon of materialism. It could have been the demon of confusion. It could have been any kind of demon. You could have sit in there. Now, Pallison's next words pull no punches, so I won't either. Here's what he said. The result... Not only did Cynthia and Andrew reinforce their hostility, they trampled the name of Christ through the mud of their superstition, their hostility, their fear and confusion. Needless to say, the real devil, who aims to dishonor God and conform us to his evil ways, could only be pleased at the ensuing personal and interpersonal wreckage. End quote. Well, it seems today, again, if the world is having a hard time believing in the devil... It's now moved to the realm of a symbol of evil. The church has swung the pendulum in a complete opposite direction. We believe in him too much. We see him behind every bush. We've now turned sins into demons. It's no longer the sin of lust, and it's no longer a sin of anger, and it's no longer a sin of possession. It's no longer a sin of greed and pride. It's now a demon of those things. Isn't that interesting how the shift has taken place in the church? So what do we need today? I think we need, among many things, is a reformation in our understanding of spiritual warfare. So if you would, let's turn to Romans 12. We're going to hear reformational words about spiritual warfare. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We're 
We're going to read chapter 12, and then we're going to touch on the first beast. We're going to touch on the second beast. And yes, we will cover the beasts this morning. There's a great sign that appeared in heaven, and a woman was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now she was pregnant, and she was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with an iron rod. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, that you dwell in them, who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's three and a half years. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sea, on the sand of the sea. So now the picture here is after the, this, remember, I want you to get your bearings here. This is one great battle seen from two incredible angles. You're seeing a battle ensue on earth, one through six, a battle ensue in heaven, seven to the end of the chapter. One event, two different angles. Now, after this battle and the dragon is now on earth, he stands on earth and he calls forth his two image bearers. Image bearer number one. 13.1, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on his head. Go to verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. O Lord, we confess this is powerful imagery. It is very vivid, it is very dark in some ways, and yet it's incredibly triumphant. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us all to see rightly your word, 
that you would shine on the page, that you would help us to see what is true about Jesus and what is true about the counterfeit Trinity. Also this, Lord, so we might be strengthened to endure and strengthened to stand as we live for your glory in this present evil age. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Revelation 12 through 13. Remember, it's an inside look. It's a pull back the curtain look to the oldest, rawest, most savage conflict of the ages. It's about a core conflict that drives and is behind the human drama of history. Okay? That's what we're looking at here. So the big idea of Revelation 12 through 13 is spiritual warfare. So we're calling it Spiritual Warfare 101. We're going to begin to look at, as we started last week, at central elements from this passage that pull out the reality of spiritual warfare. And as we look at spiritual warfare from this passage, I think we're going to hear things that we haven't heard before. And we're going to see things we haven't seen before. And we might have to turn on its head some teaching that we've been even hanging on to even now about what spiritual warfare is. What we're going to do today is we're going to We're going to look at the reality of the dragon and the beasts. And then next week we're going to start, if we're looking at this passage like a funnel, we're starting very broad with the the governing main ideas and the governing principles of this passage and move our way down to where it gets very personal and it gets very up close. And we're going to have some very close applications next week. So next week you might not want to come. It's going to get a little uncomfortable because we're going to look at specifically how do we fight in this spiritual warfare. I hope now we're going to begin to get a grasp of what spiritual warfare is and then how are we to engage in it. Like Ephesians 6. You might want to read Ephesians 6 this week and you might want to read this passage to get prepared for next week. Now our plan is to cover these crucial elements and, and the reality is we want to see Chapter 13, verse 10, become true to us. Let's look at that passage, the the last part. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. So the scripture actually gives its own application. We don't have to find it. We We don't have to create our own applications when we come to the scripture. Sometimes it just takes a little more thinking and a little more prayer and a little more internalization of what's on the text. But the text gives us the application right off the bat. It wants to press into you faith. It wants to press into you endurance. It wants to press into you the grace to actually live for his glory in this present evil age. Now, I want you to to get that down. I want us to solidify even right here, if we haven't already, that the scripture does the work. The word of God brings the goods. I think we need to settle that even when we come to a passage like this, we're not to think firsthand, okay, I need to gain faith for myself, and I need to work up endurance and strength for myself in the passage. No, what needs to happen is we need to see we need it, but then we need to turn to the Lord with empty hands because He alone gives it. And see, what happens now is, is you're radically reformed in your thinking and understanding of the Christian life. And that means that the giver gets the glory and he's the one giving in a passage. And that through the word, actually, right now that we're going to read and we're going to hear and we're going to take in, he's giving to you faith and endurance. 
Okay? So, apart from him, we can do nothing. And nothing is what we do apart from him. So now let's come with receiving empty hands to receive what God gives, which is a knowledge of himself and to such an extent that you actually feel faith begin to generate and warm your soul and strength to endure whatever you are right now in this great tribulation. Okay? All right, so let's take a look at the, the first one. Well, last week you saw that we looked at spiritual warfare being good news, and all that meant was is that after the fall, the slithering serpent's temptation and Adam and Eve's sin, when that happened, this dark bond was formed between them. A deep, abiding friendship. No hostility, no enmity, no warfare. We took on the mind of the voice of the serpent. We took on the worship and the idolatry of the serpent. We took on his nature, his character. We became like him. And the first good news on spiritual warfare is this, that God walked into the garden And he said, I will put enmity, hostility, warfare between you, serpent, and the woman. And so God tears up the team. He breaks the bond. And that's the beginning of spiritual warfare. Okay? So at the very beginning, spiritual warfare is good news. Because God wouldn't let us be on the same team. All right. Now, let's move to the second principle. Let's keep going. There's an old proverb about a strong young Indian. And he climbed up a snow-capped peak near his home. And when he reached the summit, he gazed over the endless beauty. He had the cool breeze of the air hitting him in the face. And he relished in his sense of an accomplishment. As he was there in his elation and caught up in the moment of what he had done with his hands on his hips, a slithering Motion under his feet caused attention. He looked down and he saw this pitiful snake. And the snake looked up to him and says, I'm about to die. It's too cold for me up here and I'm freezing. Right? There's no food and I'm starving. Please wrap me under your shirt and take me down to the valley. No, said the young man. I know you're kind. You're a rattlesnake. If I pick you up, you'll bite me and I'll die. No, the snake says. I won't. I will treat you differently. If you do this for me, you'll be special to me and I won't harm you. At last, the youth gave in to the creature's pitiful pleading. He tucked the snake under his shirt and made the trek back down to the valley to his tribe. He gets into the valley to the green, lush grass, the warmer climate, the bountiful provisions. All that's there reaches in under his shirt, pulls out the snake, puts the snake down. Immediately the snake coils, rattles, strikes, bites deep into his leg, inserting his poisonous venom. The boy shouts, but you promised, as he falls to the ground and sees the venom feels the venom work its way into his bloodstream. And the snake said, you knew what I was when you picked me up and slithered away. The second principle 
of Spiritual Warfare 101 is not the first one. Spiritual Warfare is good news. The second is know your enemy. Know your enemy. And the first thing you need to know from this passage is that your enemy hates God and hates you. Let's look at verse 12, 4. He swept, he's describing the resume of the dragon, and at the end of it says, The dragon stood before the woman in 12, 4, who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The dragon seeks to devour the son, the child, God's son. The dragon hates Jesus. The dragon hates God. The dragon hates grace. The dragon wants to turn you into a giver, not a receiver. The dragon wants to completely take away from God's glory by being the one that gives. And we'll describe how that goes here. But right now, just know that he hates God and he hates you. It started way back with Herod's slaughter, didn't it? Remember, all children, two years and younger. Herod sent them to his soldiers to Bethlehem and the whole region. He says, wipe out every male child two years and younger. That's where a, a manifestation, an embodiment of this dragon's hatred actually pressed into history in a real time. Now, it continued through the life of Jesus. It took further steps with Satan tempting Jesus, the second Adam, the better Adam, remember, in the wilderness. Now, Adam was in the garden, and he was with God in the garden. Jesus is now sent out into the wilderness. Remember, he just got baptized, signifying his public ministry on earth is to begin. And the first act of his public ministry is to face the same temptation that the first Adam did and yet prevail. But the serpent, the dragon, was seeking to devour Jesus. And remember, there was all kinds of temptations he threw at him for the 40 days in the desert. Now, it continued with confrontations with demons possessing humans. You might remember the demoniac in Mark 4 who lived among the tombs. Remember, he lived in the dead. It said that he would cut himself and he, he lived with the decaying bodies. And he was so strong that no chains, the text says, could Hold him. He broke every chain they tried to put on him. There wasn't man or men strong enough to hold him down. And remember, Jesus and his disciples are crossing. They just got done with the, the, the stormy sea, remember? The stormy sea just took place, and now they're about to land on a stormy land. The demoniac sees from afar the boat coming to his side, and he knows who it is, and he comes running down. You know, screaming, blood curdling, who knows, but he's coming to attack Jesus. And there's a little humor in this passage because the boat lands on shore and they see this blood curdling demoniac running at him, and it says, Jesus got out of the boat. None of the other 12 got out of the boat. <laughs> Jesus got out of the boat. And it says, the text says, the moment he stepped out of the boat and faced the demoniac, the demoniac fell on his face and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? It wasn't, you know, how are we alike, Jesus? It was, what are you going to do to me, Jesus? Remember? And it continued with the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders' oppositions to Jesus. Everywhere he went, there was opposition to his teaching. Everywhere he went, there was counterfeit teaching. Jesus would say something true and life, 
And then someone else would slither in and teach something that was fake and false and a lie, running parallel to the truth. Right? The final climax of this confrontation with God came at the cross, where supposedly the child got devoured. Right? Now, when you move through the text, you got it's interesting. Now in verse 5, we all of a sudden pass over Jesus' life. There's the birth. We pass over his life, and we're quickly now at his resurrection and ascension. Look at verse 5. She gave birth to the male child, birth, one to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Immediately we're in the resurrection. Revelation runs to the resurrection, runs to the ascension. Because... The dragon got defeated. Now, when the dragon got defeated, it marked, the, it marked a shift in his tactics and his strategy. He went from God, whom he couldn't defeat, to the church, whom he thinks he can. And that's what we got in 12.6. And the woman fled into the wilderness. Well, she has a place prepared by God. We'll talk about that a little bit again. There seems to be some confusion over the woman. In which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay? Now, this again, his hate towards the church in verse six is viewed from earth. When you get to 12, 13 through 17, we're going to see his hatred towards the church viewed from heaven. This is not chronological order. This is the same event, two different perspectives to help you get a further rich angle on what you are to see. So that faith and endurance is pressed into your soul. Okay. All right. So we'll get back to that. Know your enemy's defining character. He's a liar. So we've got to know your enemy. And in knowing your enemy, know his hatred for God and for you. That's the first thing you need to know. Know his defining character. He's a liar. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill studied his enemy intensely. It was said that he studied and he studied and he studied. He pulled out every speech and poured over every speech. He read every policy and picked it apart. He took through and dissected every one of his actions in his foreign policy. And of course, who was that? Adolf Hitler, right? Churchill came to this conclusion by knowing his enemy and studying him intensely. He said any foreign policy statement made by Hitler was the exact opposite of the truth. Brothers and sisters, we need to know that the core character of our enemy is that he's a liar. There is no truth in him. Okay? In Revelations 12, 3, we see the great dragon, right? Now let's link what's described to the great dragon in verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil, who is called Satan, which is the deceiver of the whole world. That's his tactic on the church. It's not power encounters. It's deception. It's not demons of lust and demons of pride and demons of greed. It's deception. In fact, Jesus said he was a murderer from the beginning. He has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. His first one was in the garden. And he lies up to what? February 5th, 2006, 1155. Now the red dragon is a liar and he lies because he wants to murder you. 
And his murder, maybe physically, because we're going to see that in beast number one, but mostly his murder has to do with you dishonoring God. If he gets you to dishonor God, he's murdered you and conformed you and me to his image and into his wicked ways. He wants to reaffirm the alliance. He thinks he can get the alliance back in the church. Now, knowing your enemy's tactics, that's what we need to know next. Now we're in the context of the beasts. When you get to the enemy's tactics, you're at beast number one and beast number two. So we got to quickly, there's, there's so much in those chapter, in that chapter 13. And there's so much that we can easily be bogged down in. So we're going to hit the main points of beast number one, beast number two. But you're knowing his tactics when you look at these two. That's the intent of the passage. It's to give you imagery and very powerful imagery of what's taking place to give you his tactics. Okay, so let's look at that. All right. The war on the church or the woman. I just want to clarify that real quick. Some commonly think and intuitively think that the woman is Mary. But I want you to remember. When the first announcement of good news happened in the garden. I will put enmity between you and the Woman, not the man, not Adam, the woman. And between your descendants, your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. What the woman symbolizes here is that, again, and also the church is called the bride of Christ. And then the further proof as we get into this text, you have the sun, you have the moon under her feet, you have the head of crown of 12 stars. This is all taken from, from Joseph's dream. Remember, he had a dream in which the moon and the sun and the 12 or the 12 stars would bow down to him. The picture here again is that this is taking place immediately after the 12 sons of Jacob are named Israel, the people of God. And so you have a, a, a moon, which represents the people of Israel in terms of the mother Rachel. Let me look at it. You have the sun, which is Jacob. You have the moon, which is Rachel. The eleven stars, which is his brothers. Joseph makes the twelfth. You have Israel as a people bowing down to Joseph. And if you really want to fast forward that text, we know that Joseph is the one man that saves the people of God. And he saves those who sinned against him. Now, who does that? Who is the hero that the stick figure Joseph types and shadows? Right? Okay, so that is what we got here. All together, we have the woman symbolizing God's people. First, as Mother Israel. That's the point in the beginning of showing Joseph's dream. The mother is symbolizing Israel or God's people in terms of mother Israel. Then in the next part, it's the mother is the Messiah. And the next part in, in verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Well, who's that? That's the church. That's the church. All right. Now we've got two beasts, one coming from the sea, one coming from the earth. What that's trying to tell us is, is that these beasts are seeking dominion of all of creation. Land and sea, everything's covered. So you have one coming from the sea, one coming from the earth. It's hinting at a powerful lust to dominate the whole earth. And they're modeled after two monsters in Job, the Leviathan and the Behemoth. 
Remember, the Leviathan comes out of the sea, the behemoth on land. Now, the Leviathan represented everything that was creepy and ugly and terror-ridden and rebellious. It came from the dark abyss of the ocean. In that day and in the ancient world, the oceans and the seas were where the monsters came from. It's where the abyss was. It's where darkness brooded. It's where chaotic things arose out of. A leviathan. And then the behemoth represented the, the beast from the land. In fact, Vern Poitras, who's a Revelation scholar, he said, Job is probably referring to the hippopotamus and the crocodile. But with incredibly charged, hyperbolic, poetic imagery. Readers are invited to use these creatures as windows on the terrors of nightmares and the preternatural realm of demons. So, again, the images are to look through to greater realities. Okay? Now, the two beasts with the dragon, what they're doing is they're forming a counterfeit, unholy trinity. You have the dragon counterfeiting God the Father. Isn't it interesting? In chapter 1, notice what he's doing. He's creating a mock creation. The dragon stands on the land and he faces the sea and over the chaotic waters he brings forth his own creation. Right? So what the text is also trying to show that though the dragon and these beasts aspire to be godlike, they're really beasts. That's part of the point. Now, as the dragon stands and he reaches into the ocean and he calls forth his own image, notice beast number one looks exactly like him. Same type of horns, same type of imagery, because he's a counterfeit image of the Holy Trinity. If the dragon is counterfeiting the Father, beast number one is counterfeiting the Son of God. How do we know that? Because he has this mortal wound and yet he's revived. Do you see the pictures taking place here? Not only that, is it, what else we got here? He, he promotes worship. He is receiving worship. Jesus is receiving worship. Again, this is all in that particular passage. In verse 7, notice that every tribe, every tongue, every language he supposedly has authority over. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? I have all authority. Counterfeiting Jesus. Now, beast number one is counterfeiting the Son of God, beast number three, is counterfeiting the Holy Spirit. And in later in Revelation, it's called the false prophet. Now, that's why there's references to the, the second beast promoting worship of the beast number one. The false prophet's trying to get everyone to worship beast number one. What does the Holy Spirit do? It seeks to create worshipers of Jesus. And not only that, what's the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit performed all these miraculous signs in the book of Acts when the church was being born. What does beast number two, the false prophet, do? If you look at the text, he's performing all these miraculous signs. And then finally, what does beast number two do that the Holy Spirit does, but it counterfeits? The Holy Spirit seals the people of God. And what does this beast do? It seals the earth dwellers with 666. Okay? All counterfeiting. Now... All right, now what's the strategy? I hope we've got that down. We get to the strategy of them. Beast number one, this is the strategy. Punishing persecution through state power. 
If you look at the image here, that's why you got this weird image of a bear, a leopard, a lion, a dragon. The beast is looking like this thing. Now, if you know and remember Daniel, when Daniel had a vision of the Gentile empires that were coming to crush and were coming in the future, in the near future, they were described in these animals. Remember, the leopard were the Greeks, the bear were the Persians, the lion was the Babylonians, and then Rome had these iron teeth and ten horns. Now, what's happening here is, is this, this monster, this beast number one that comes out is more than all of them. He's like them, but he's more than all of them. And the reason why is because there's no other place on earth that has more power than governments. State power is concentrated, power is concentrated into state power and governments on earth. That's the greatest power you can have on earth. Okay? That's the description that's taking place here. Now, if the, de- if the state is demon energized, meaning that the beast comes into the state and energizes it with his energy and his influence, it means bad things for the church. It means bad things for Christians. It means bad governments that persecute and punish and seek to devour the church. And we see that in history over and over and over again, don't we? We could see that in Hitler's Germany. We could see that in Stalinist Russia. We can see that in communism in China, Middle East, and the Sudan. And all the state power, demon energized, beast number one is trying to do is to get everybody to worship it. And it will seek to cause the Christian to worship. And the way it does this is through fear. It might be fear of losing your life. It might be fear of losing your prestige. It might be fear of losing the esteem of others. Can you imagine what it would have been like when you were in, in Germany at the time and you had been so, quote, looked down upon by all of Europe and all of a sudden this guy comes in and gives you pride again in being a German? And then you step in and say, this isn't good, and you're looked at as unpatriotic. And that's one of the least fears you have to worry about. Loss of property, loss of life, loss of your family. You see how this works? All you have to do is bow down. Give worship, and there's no more warfare. Okay? Now, demonized state power threatens Christians. It's a little more subtle in democratic countries if it gets a hold there, and that is... I think what happens in state governments is they begin to be seen and put themselves up as and more democracies as the savior of all of human ills. The savior economically, the savior educationally, the savior morally, the savior culturally, the savior even in the spiritual and medical realm and the environment. Everything. So you worship the government in order to get your needs or your solutions met, right? Now, I need you to hear me, and I'm running out of time, but please hear me this. The power of governments is a God-given grace. It's called common grace. The power of governments is is God-given. The power of governments is to restrain evil and promote justice. And that is a common grace for everyone, and we don't deserve it. But the dark underside is this. If the beast energizes 
demonically, which is what this text is saying, and gets into government and, and influences it, it has a dark underside. Coercive power and persecution of the church. Now, beast number two, its strategy is a little more deceptive. In fact, it spins deceptive doctrines. It weaves warped worldviews. It counterfeits the word of God. And that's when Revelation 13, 14, deception is the key word there. Instead of living by every word that comes from the mouth of God, we start living by words that come from the mouth of a slithering serpent. A worm tongue. It comes like light, but it's right from the pit. And you wonder, okay, how is this strategy identified in other parts of the Bible? Well, it's called false teachers and false teaching. And as we were talking, coming back from Presbytery, Pete said something was very interesting. In the observation of the epistles, the enemy is never outside the church. The false teachings in the church. Isn't that interesting? In all the epistles, the false teaching is the enemy of the church, but it's not from the world, it's from the church. So deception is a very key weapon here. So again, number two, the second beast is counterfeiting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the inspirer of the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit is the illuminator of the Word of God. And what the second beast does is it tries to inspire its own counterfeit vision version of the Word of God, a new translation, and illumine us to it. Okay? So you've got to be aware of this dynamic of deception, because deception's goal is your soul. That's the point of 13.12. If you look at 13.12, it says it's trying to force us to actually worship the beast. It's creating worship. And so deception's goal is your soul by getting to your soul to worship it. And so the reach of your goal to your soul, the way it gets there is the battlefield of your mind. Your mind moves your soul. And so deception attacks the battlefield of your mind to get to your soul. By getting to your mind, it moves your soul in its, in its sights of reality. It moves your soul in its trusts, in its hopes, in its loves, in its worship, in its life. By getting the mind. Doctrines of demons, Revelation calls it. You see, the mind is like the lighthouse of the soul. It's meant to cast light of the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus shines like a light into your soul. And now you see the glories of Jesus. And now you're illumined to the wonder of His majesty and His grace for you. And now the light scatters darkness. And now while you, you sail in the stormy seas and the stormy rock-filled coasts of this present evil age, the truth of God's Word is a lighthouse into your soul. And deception comes in and puts out the light. And now you sail in stormy, dark waters, unprotected. That's the point of deception. Okay? All right. Let's end with this. If you've got to know the enemy, the last thing you need to know is you need to know your enemy is defeated. Know that your enemy is defeated. Two times in this passage, the dragon is pictured defeated. Remember, his defeat is one event in the passage, but you're seeing it from earth and then you see it from heaven. Two times he's mentioned to be defeated. 
And then you look at this, it's quite amazing. In verses 3 and 4, you have this long resume of the dragon. You have this incredible description of the dragon's power. He's so powerful, he takes his tail and wham, all these stars, a third of the stars in heaven come down. You know, it's, it's creating this, this stunning suspense. It's like, who can face the dragon? I mean, ten, remember seven, seven's perfect. He has all knowledge, all wisdom, all power. Who can stand up to him? It's almost like you, you rewind back to a, a Philistine who was over nine feet tall. Remember? And he had legs like tree trunks. And he had arms like hammers. And a spear in his hand was a missile. And who can stand against him? And then you get 11 short, to-the-point words. The child was given birth. He was caught up to God in heaven to his throne. Not a wasted word. Birth to throne. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Four and five. What about the dragon? What about this hideous creature? Birth to throne. Well, there wasn't even a speed bump. Birth to throne. Not a speed bump. He's defeated. No mention of Jesus' earthly life. No mention of 33 years. No mention of three years of ministry. No mention of a perfect life of obedience. Not even a mention of a cross. Not even a mention of the serpent. It's birth to throne. He's going to the throne. And nothing will stop him. Least of all, some red dragon. So my friends, here's the final point. If you are not a believer... You are, you are under the devouring reality of the dragon. And it might be overt power plays in your life, and you're very aware of them. But most likely, if you're an American, it's more the, the subtlety, backdoor deceptions that you have no clue about. And the answer is, call upon the one on the throne. And trust in his cross, trust in his obedience, trust in his crown. And the alliance is broken and you're on the other team. Those of you that are Christians, what we need to remember is we need to remember that his time is short. And that's the wonderful thing about his defeat. He knows it. If you look at that passage, I think it's 13... Actually, it's 12. He knows that his time is short. He knows it. The enemy is defeated. Your enemy is defeated. And so he knows it. You need to know it. So as a Christian, what we do now is we can say very realistically, amidst the dragon and when he rages against you, and he might be raging against you again in, in overt power plays in your life, but pr probably it's more the subtlety ways. And you can say, with all honesty, you can say to the dragon, amidst all your raging, it doesn't matter, you can rage all you want. You can rage till you're blue in the face. 
I'm not yours. I'm with Jesus. And He's on the throne. And that's how you fight spiritual warfare. Rage all you want. I'm not yours. I'm His. He's on the throne. Amen.